Chapter 12 of A Dark Knight's Work. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anthony Orr. A Dark Knight's Work by Elizabeth Cleghorn Gaskell. Chapter 12. There are some people who imperceptibly float away from their youth into middle age, and thence pass into declining life with the soft and gentle motion of happy years. There are others who are whirled, in spite of themselves, down dizzy rapids of agony, away from their youth at one great bound, into old age with another sudden shock, and thence into the vast calm ocean where there are no shore marks to tell the time. This last, it seemed, was to be Eleanor's lot. Her youth was gone in a single night, fifteen years ago, and now she appeared to become an elderly woman, very still and hopeless in look and movement, but as sweet and gentle in speech and smile she had ever been in her happiest days. All young people, when they came to know her, loved her dearly, though at first they might call her dull and heavy to get on with. As for children and old people, her ready watchful sympathy in their joys as well as their sorrows was an unfailing passage to their hearts. After the first great shock of Mr. Corbett's marriage was over, she seemed to pass into a greater peace than she had known for years. The last faint hope of happiness was gone. It would, perhaps, be more accurate to say, of the bright happiness she had planned for herself in her early youth. Unconsciously, she is being weaned from self-seeking in any shape, and her daily life became, if possible, more innocent and pure and holy. One of the canons used to laugh at her for her constant attendance at all the services, and for her devotion to good works, and call her always the Reverend Sister. Miss Monroe was little annoyed at this faint clerical joke. Eleanor smiled quietly. Miss Monroe disapproved of Eleanor's grave ways and sober style of dress. "'You may be as good as you like, my dear, and yet go dressed in some pretty colour, instead of those, all those perpetual blacks and greys. And then there would be no need for me to be perpetually telling people you are only four-and-thirty, and they don't believe me, though I tell them till I am black in the face. Or you would wear but a decent-shaped bonnet, instead of always wearing one of those pokey shape in fashion when you were seventeen. The old canon died, and someone was to be appointed in his stead. These clerical preference and appointments were the all-important interests of the inhabitants of the close, and discussion and probabilities came up invariably if any two met together, in street or house, or even in the very cathedral itself. At length it was settled, and announced by the higher powers, an energetic, hard-working clergyman from a distant part of the diocese, Livingstone by name, was to have the vacant cannery. Miss Monroe said the name was somewhat familiar to her, and by degrees she recollected that the young curate had, who had come to inquire after Eleanor in that dreadful illness she had had at Hamley in the year 1829. Eleanor knew nothing of that visit, no more than Miss Monroe did of what had passed between the two before that ancient night. Eleanor just thought it possible there might be the same Mr. Livingstone, and would rather it not, because she did not feel as if she could bear the frequent thought not initiate intercourse she must needs have. And if such were the case, with one so closely associated with that great time of terror which she was striving to bury out of sight by every effort in her power. Miss Monroe, on the contrary, was busy weaving a romance for her pupil. She thought of the passionate interest displayed by the fair young clergyman fifteen years ago, and believed that occasionally men could be constant, and hoped that if Mr. Livingstone was a new canon, it might prove the rara avis which exists but once in a century. He came, and it was the same. He looked a little stouter, a little older, but still had the gait and aspect of a young man. His smooth face was scarcely lined at all with any marks of care. The blue eyes looked so kindly and peaceful, the Miss Monroe could scarcely fancy what they were the same, which she had seen fast filling with tears, 
the bland calm look of the whole man who knew the evident devoutness to be raised into the type of holy innocence which some of the romanists called the sacerdotal fate his entire soul was in his work and he looked as little likely to step forth in the character of either a hero of romance or a faithful lover could be imagined still miss munro was not discouraged she remembered the warm passionate feelings she had once seen break through the calm exterior and she believed that what happened once might occur again of course while all the eyes were directed on the new canon he had to learn who the possessors of those eyes were one by one and it was probably some time before the idea it came into his mind that miss wilkins the lady in black with the sad pale face so constant an attendant at service so regular a visitor at the school were the same miss wilkins as the bright vision of his youth it was her sweet smile at a painstaking child that betrayed her as indeed betrayal might be called where there was no wish or effort to conceal anything canon livingstone left the schoolroom almost directly and after being an for an hour or so in his house went out to call on miss randall the person who knew more of her neighbour's affairs than any one in east chester the next day he called on miss wilkins herself she would have been very glad if he had kept on his ignorance it was so keenly painful in the company of one sight of whom even at a distance had brought her such a keen remembrance of her past misery and when told of his call as she was sitting at her sewing in the dining-room she had to nerve herself for an interview before going upstairs into the drawing-room where he was being entertained by miss munro with warm demonstrations of welcome a little contraction of the brow a little compression of the lip an increased pallor on eleanor's part was all that miss munro could see in her though she had put on her glasses with foresight and intention to observe she turned to the canon his colour had certainly deepened as he went forward with outstretched hand to meet eleanor that was all that was to be seen but only a slight foundation of the blush miss munro built many castles and when they faded away one by one she recognised that they were only baseless visions she used to put the disappointment of her hopes down to eleanor's unvaried calmness of demeanour which might be taken for the coldness of disposition and to her steady refusal to allow miss munro to invite canon livingstone to the small teas that they were in the habit of occasionally giving yet he preserved in his calls about once every fortnight he came and he would sit an hour or more looking covertly at his watch as if Miss Munro shrewdly observed to herself, yet he did not go away at last because he wished to do so, but because he ought. Sometimes Eleanor was present, sometimes she was away. In this latter case, Miss Munro thought she could detect a certain wistful watching at the door every time a noise was heard outside the room. He always avoided any reference to former days at Hamley, and that, Miss Munro feared, was a bad sign. After this long uniformity of years, without any event closely touching on Eleanor's own individual life, with the one great exception of Mr. Corbett's marriage, something happened which much affected her. Mr. Ness suddenly died of this personage, and Ellen learnt it at first from Mr. Brown, a clergyman who was living near Hamley, and who had been sent from the personage's servants as soon as they discovered it was not sleep but death that made their master so late in rising. Mr. Brown had been appointed executor by his late friend, and wrote to tell Eleanor that after a few legacies were paid, she was to have a life interest in the remainder of the small property which mr ness had left and that it would be necessary for her as the residuary legatee to come to hamley parsonage as soon as convenient to decide upon certain courses of action with regard to furniture books etc eleanor shrank from this journey which her love and duty towards her dead friend rendered necessary she had scarcely left east chester since she first arrived there sixteen or seventeen years ago and she was timorous about the very mode of travelling and then to go back into hamley which she thought she would never to see again. She never spoke much about any feelings of her own, but Miss Munro could always read her silence, 
and interpret it to, into pretty, just, and forcible words that afternoon when Canning Livingstone called. She liked to talk to Eleanor about him, and suspect that he, he liked to hear. She was almost annoyed by the time by the comfort he would keep giving her. There was no greater danger in travelling by railroad than by coach. A little care about certain things were required, that was all, and the average number of deaths by accidents on railroad was not greater than the average number when people travelled by coach, and if you took into consideration the far greater number of travellers, yes, returning to the deserted scenes of one's youth was very painful. Had Miss Wilkins made any provision for another lady to take her place in the visitor in the school? He believed it was her week. Miss Monroe was all out of patience with his entire calmness and reasonableness. Later in the day she became more at peace with him, when she received a kind note from Miss Forbes. A great friend of Forbes was not was quite sure that Miss Monroe's companionship upon it would be a great comfort to both, and that she could be set liberally for a fortnight or so, for it had fallen this admirably with the fact that Jeanie was growing tall, and the doctor advised sea air for the spring, so a month's holiday would suit them now even better than later on. Was this going straight to Mrs. Forbes, to whom she should scarcely herself like to name it, and in the act of a good, thoughtful man, or of a lover? questioned Miss Munro. But she could not answer her own inquiry, and she had to be very grateful for the deed, without accounting for her motives. A coach met the train at the station about ten miles from Hamley, and Dixon was at the inn where the coach stopped, ready to receive them. The old man was almost in tears at the sight of the game again in a familiar place. He had put on his Sunday clothes to do them honour, and to conceal his agitation he kept up a pretended bustle about their luggage. To the indignation of the importers, who were of a later generation, he would wheel himself to the parsonage, though he broke down from fatigue once or twice on the way, and had to stand and rest, his ladies waiting by him side, and making remarks on the alterations of houses and the places of trees, in order to give him ample time to recruit himself, for there was no one to wait for them and give them a welcome at the parsonage, which was to be their temporary home. The respectful servants in deep mourning had all prepared, and gave Eleanor a note from Mr. Brown, saying that he purposely refrained from disturbing them that day after their long journey, but would call on them morrow, and tell them of the arrangement he thought of making, or always subject to Miss Wilkins's approval. They were simple enough, certain legal forms to be gone through, any selection from books or furniture to be made, and the rest to be sold by auction as speedily as convenient, as the successor to the living might wish to have repairs and alterations effected in the old parsonage. For some days Eleanor employed herself in business about the house, never going out except to church. Miss Monroe, on the contrary, strolled about everywhere, noticing all the alterations in places and people, which were never improvements in her opinion. Eleanor had plenty of callers, her tenants, Mr. and Miss Osbaldistone, among others, but, excepting in work cases, most of them belonged to humble life. She declined to see almost everyone, as she had business enough on her hands. Sixteen years makes a great difference in any set of people. The old acquaintances of her father in her better days were almost all dead or removed, and there were one or two remaining, and these Eleanor received, one or two more, old and infirm, confined to their houses. She planned to call upon them before leaving Hanley. Every evening, when Dixon had done his work at Mr. Oldbaldystone's, he came up to the parsonage, obstinately to help her moving or packing books, but really because those two clung to each other, and were bound to each other by a bond never to be spoken about. It was understood between them that once Eleanor left she would go to see the old place, Ford Bank, not to go into the house, though Mr. and Mrs. Old Baldystone had begged her to name her own time for revisiting it when they and her family would be absent, but to see all the gardens and grounds once more, a solemn, miserable visit, which, because of the very misery it involved, appeared to Eleanor to be an imperative duty. 
Dixon and she talked together as she sat making a catalogue one evening in the low broad library. The casement windows were opened into the garden, and the May showers had brought out the scents of the new leaf sweet by brush just below. Beyond the garden hedge in the grassy meadows sloped away down to a liver, and the parsonage was so much raised that, sitting in the house, you could see over the boundary hedge. Men with instruments were busy in the window. Eleanor, pausing in her work, asked Dixon what they were doing. "'That's them people for the new railway,' said he. "'Not would satisfy the Hamley folk, but to have a railway all to themselves. Coaches ain't good enough nowadays.' He spoke with eternal first personal offence natural to a man who had passed all his life among horses, and considered railway engines as their despicable rival, conquering only by stratagem. By and by Eleanor passed on to the subject of consideration, which she had repeatedly urged upon Dixon, and entreated him to come and form one of the household at East Chester. He's growing old, she thought, older even in looks and feelings than in years, and she would make him happy and comfortable in his declining years, if he would but come and pass them under her care. The addition which Mr. Ness's bequest made to her income would enable her not only to do this, but to relieve Miss Monroe of her occupation of teaching, which, at the years that she had arrived, was becoming burdensome. When she proposed the removal to Dixon, he shook his head. It's not that I don't thank you, and kindly too, but I'm too old to go chopping and changing. But it would be no change to come back to me, Dixon, said Eleanor. Yes, it would. I was born here in Camley, and it's Hamley I reckon to die. On her urging him a little more, it came out he had a strong feeling that if he did not watch the spot where the dead man lay buried, the hole would be discovered, and this dread of his had often poisoned his pleasure to visit East Chester. I don't rightly know how it is, for sometimes I think if it wasn't for you, Missy, I should be glad enough to make it all clear before I go. And yet, at times I dream, or it comes into my head as I lie awake with the rheumatics, that someone is there, digging, or I hear them cutting down the tree, and when I get up and look out the loft window, you'll mind the window over the stables, and look out into the garden, all covered with the leaves of the jargon pear tree. That was my room when I first came as a stable boy, and though Mr. Old Battistone would fair give me a warmer one, I always tell him I like the old place best, and by the times I getting up five or six times a night to make sure there was no one at work under the tree. Eleanor shivered a little. He saw it, and restrained himself in the relief he was receiving from imparting his superstitious fancies. You see, Missy, I could never rest nights if I didn't feel as if I kept the secret in my hand, and held it tight night and day, so I could open my hand any minute and see it was there. No, my own little Missy will let me come down and see her now and again, and I know I can always ask her for what I want. But if it pleases God to lay me by, I shall tell her so, and she'll see me as I want for nothing. But somehow I could ne'er bear leaving Hanley. You shall come and follow me to my grave when the time comes. Don't talk, please, say Dixon, said she. Nay, it'll be a mercy when I can lay me down and sleep in peace, though I sometimes fear his peace will not come to me even there. He was going out of the room, and was now more talking to himself than her. They say blood will out, and if it weren't for her part in it, I wish I could just make a clear breast before I die. She did not hear the latter part of this mumbled sentence. She was looking at a letter just brought in requiring an immediate answer. It was from Mr. Brown. Notes from him were as daily as occurrence, but this contained an open letter, the writing of which was strangely familiar to her. It did not need the signature, Ralph Corbett, to tell her who the letter came from. From some moments she could not read the words. They expressed a simple enough request, and were addressed to the auctioneer who was to dispose of the rather valuable library of the late Mr. Ness, and whose name had been advertised in connection with the sailor in the Anthenium, and other similar papers. To him, Mr. Corbett wrote, saying that he should be unable to be present when the books were sold, but he wished to be allowed to buy, in any price decided upon, a certain rare folio edition of Virgil, bound in parchment, and with notes in Italian. 
The book was fully described. Though no Latin scholar, Eleanor knew the book well, remembered its look from old times, and it could instantly have laid her hand upon it. The auctioneer had sent the request on to his employer, Mr. Brown. That gentleman applied to Eleanor for her consent. Sure that the fact of the intended sale must be all that Mr. Corbett was aware of, and he could not know to whom the books belonged. She chose out the book, and wrapped and tied it up with her trembling hands. He might be the person to untie the knot. It was strangely familiar to her love, after so many years, to be brought into thus much contact with him. She wrote a short note to Mr. Brown, in which she requested him to say, as though from himself, without any mention of her name, that he, as executor, requested Mr. Corbett's acceptance of the Virgil, as a remembrance of his former friend and tutor. Then she rang the bell, and gave the letter and parcel to the servant. Again alone, and Mr. Corbett's open letter on the table, she looked it up and looked at it until the letters dazzled crimson on the white paper. Her life rolled backwards, and she was a girl again. At last she roused herself, but instead of destroying the note, it was long years since all her love letters from him had been returned to the writer. She unlocked her little writing case again, and placed this little letter down carefully at the bottom, among the dead rose leaf which embalmed the note from her father, found after his death under his pillow, and the little golden curl of his sister's, and the half-finished sewing of her mother. The shabby writing-case itself was given to by her father long ago, and had been taken everywhere with her. And, to be sure, the, her changes of place had been few, but if she had gone to Nova Zambella, that sight of that little box on awakening from her first sleep would have given her a sense of home. She locked the case up, and felt all the richer that morning. A day or two afterwards she left Hamley. Before she went she had compelled herself to go round the gardens and grounds of Fordbank. She had made Mr. Old Mrs. Oldbodystone understand that it would be painful for her to re-enter the house, but Mr. Oldbodystone accompanied her in her walk. You should see how literally we have obeyed the clause in the lease which tied us out from any alterations, he said he, smiling. We are living in a tangled thicket of wood. I must confess that I should have liked to cut down a great deal, but we do not do the, even the requisite things without making the proper applications for leave to Mr. Johnson. In fact, your old friend Dixon is jealous of every pea-stake the gardener cuts. I never met with so faithful a fellow. A good enough servant, too, in his way, but somewhat too old-fashioned for my wife and daughters, who complain of him being surly now and then. You are not thinking of parting with him, said Eleanor, jealous for Dixon. Oh, no, he and I are capital friends, and I believe Mr. Osbaldestone himself, Mrs. Osbaldestone herself would never consent to him leaving us. But some ladies, you know, like a little more subvergency in their manner that our friend Dixon can boast. Eleanor made no reply. They're entering the painted flower garden, hiding the ghastly memory. She could not speak. She felt as if, with all her striving, she could not move, just as one does in a nightmare. But she was past the place even as this terror came to it to seem. And when she came to herself, Mr. Osbaldiston was still blandly talking and saying, It is now a sign for reward of our obedience to your wishes, Miss Wilkins. For if their projected railways passes through the Ashfield yonder, we should have been perpetually troubled with the sight of the train. Indeed, the sound will have been much more distinct than it would be now coming through the interlacing branches. Then, you will not go in, Miss Wilkins? Mr. Osbaldestone decided to say. Mrs. Osbaldestone decided me to say how happy. Ah, I can understand such feelings. Certainly, certainly. It is much the shortest way to the town, that we always, always go through the stable-yard. For young people, it is perhaps not quite so desirable. Ha, Dixon, he continued, on the watch from Miss Eleanor we so often hear of. This old man, he continued to Eleanor, is never satisfied with the seat of our young ladies, always comparing the ray of their lighting to the way of a certain missy. I cannot help it, sir. They have quite a different style of hand, and sit all lumpish-like. Now, 
Miss Eleanor there. Hush, Dixon, she said. Suddenly aware of why the old servant was not properly with his mistress. I suppose I may, may be allowed to ask for Dixon's company for an hour or so? We have something to do together before we leave. The consent given, the two walked away, as by previous appointment, to Hamley Churchyard, where he pointed out the exact spot where he wished to be buried. Trampling over the long, rank grass, but avoiding passing directly over any of the thickly strewn graves, he made straight for one spot, a little space of unoccupied grave close to by where Molly, the pretty scullery maid, lay, sacred to the memory of Mary Greaves, born 1797, dined 1818. We part to meet again. I put the stone up over here with my first savings, he said, looking at it, and then pulling out his knife, he began to clean the letters. I said then I would lie by her, and it'll be a comfort to think that you'll see me laid here. I trust no one will be so crabbed as to take a fancy to hear this spot of ground. Eleanor grasped eagerly at the only pleasure which her money enabled her to give to the old man, and promised him that she would take care and buy the particular piece of ground. This was evidently a gratification Dixon had frequently yearned after. He kept saying, I'm greatly obliged to ye, Miss Eleanor. I may say I'm truly obliged. And when he saw them off by the coach the next day, his last words were, I cannot justify how greatly I am obliged to you for the matter in the churchyard. It is a much more easy affair to give Miss Munro some additional comforts, as she was as cheery as ever, still working at her languages in any spare time, but confessing that she was tired for most of the perpetual teaching in which her life had been spent during the last thirty years. Eleanor was now enabled to set her at liberty from this, and she accepted the kindness from her former people with as much simple gratitude as that which a mother received a favour from a child. If Eleanor were but married to Canon Livingstone, I shall be happier than I had ever been since my father died, she used to say in the solitude of her bedchamber, for talking aloud had become her wont in the early years of her isolated life as a governess, and yet, she went on, I don't know what I should do without her. It is lucky for me that such things are not in my hands, for a pretty mess I should make of them, one way or another. Dear, how old Miss Cadogan used to hate that word, mess, and correct her granddaughters for using it before my face, when I, when I knew I had said it myself only the moment before. Well, those days are gone now. God be thanked. In spite of being glad that things were not in her hands, Miss Monroe tried to take her affairs into her charge by doing all she could persuade Eleanor to allow her to invite the canon to their little sociable teas. The most provoking part was, as she could be sure, he would have come if he had been asked, but she could never get leave to do so. Of course no man could go on forever and ever without encouragement as she confided to herself in a plaintive tone of voice, and by and by many people were led to suppose that, b that the bachelor canon was even paying attention to Miss Forbes, the eldest daughter of the family to which the delicate Jean Jeanie belonged. It was, perhaps, with the Forbeses that both Miss Monroe and Eleanor were the most intimate of all the families in East Chester. Miss Forbes was a widow lady of good means, and with a large family of pretty, delicate daughters. She herself belonged to one of the great houses in Shire, but had married into Scotland. So, after her husband's death, it was the most natural thing in the world that she should settle in East Chester, and after one of her daughters had become the first Miss Munro's pupil, and afterwards her friend. Miss Forbes had always been strongly attached by Eleanor, and it was not long before she could conquer the timid reserve by Miss Mitch Wilkins was hedged around. It was Miss Munro, who was herself incapable of jealousy, who preserved in praising them one to another, and bringing them together, and now Eleanor was as intimate as familiar in Mrs. Forbes' household as she could ever be with any family not her own. Mrs. Forbes was considered to be a little fanciful as to illness, but it was no wonder, remembering how many sisters she had lost by consumption. Miss Monroe had often grumbled as the way her, th 
in which her pupils were made irregular by very trifling causes. But no one so alarmed as she, when, in the autumn succeeding Mr. Ness's death, Mrs. Forbes remarked on Eleanor's increased delicacy of appearance, and shortness of breathing. From that time forward she worried Eleanor, if anyone so sweet and patient could ever have been worried, with respiratories and precautions. Eleanor had submitted to all her friends' wishes and cares, sooner than make her anxious, and remained a prisoner in the house through the whole of November. Then Mrs. Monroe's anxiety took another turn. Eleanor's appetites and spirits failed her, not at all an unnatural occurrence of so many weeks' confinement to the house. A plan was started, quite suddenly, one morning in December, that met with approval from everyone but Eleanor, who was, however, by this time too languid to make much resistance. Mrs. Forbes and her daughters were going to Rome for three or four weeks, as to avoid the trying east wings of spring, and why should Miss Wilkins not go with them? They urged it, and Miss Monroe urged it, although a little private sinking of her heart at the idea of a long separation from someone who was almost like a child to her. Eleanor was, as it were, lifted off her feet and borne away by the unanimous opinion of others, the doctor included, who decided that such a step was highly desirable, if not absolutely necessary. She knew that she only had a life interest in both her father's property and that bequeathed to her by Mr. Ness. Hitherto she had not felt much trouble by this, and she supposed that there was a natural course of events that she should survive Miss Monroe and Dixon, both of whom she looked upon as dependent upon her. All she had to bequeath was the two in small savings, which would not nearly suffice for both purposes, especially considering that Miss Monroe had given up her teaching, and that both she and Dixon were passing into years. Before Eleanor had left England, she made every arrangement for the contingency of her death abroad that Mr. Johnson could suggest. She had written and sent a long letter to Dixon, and a shorter one that was left in charge of Canon Livingstone. She dared not hint at the possibility of her dying to Miss Monroe to be sent to the old man. As they drove out of the King's Cross station, they passed a gentleman's carriage entering. Eleanor saw a bright, handsome lady, a nurse and baby inside, and the gentleman sitting by them whose face she could not forget. It was Mr. Corbett taking his wife and child to the railway, and they were going on a Christmas visit to the East Chester Deanery. He had been leaning back, but not noticing the passers-by, not attending to the under-inmates of the carriage, probably absorbed in the consideration of some law case. Such were the casual glimpses Eleanor had of one whose life she had once thought herself bound up. Who so proud as Miss Monroe when her foreign letter came? Her correspondent was not particularly graphic in her descriptions, nor were there any adventures to be described, nor was the habit of the mind of Eleanor as to make her clear and definite in her own impressions of what her saw, and her natural reserve kept her from communicating to them to Miss Monroe. But that lady would have been pleased to read aloud about these letters to the assembled dean and canons, who would not have been surprised if they had invited her to the chapel house for that purpose. To a circle of untravelled ladies, ignorant of Murray, but laudably desirous of information, all Eleanor's historical reminiscences and rather former details were really interesting. There were no railway in, in those days between Lyons and Marseilles, so their progress was st slow, and the passage of letters to and fro, for when they had arrived in Rome, long and uncertain. But all seemed going on well. Eleanor spoke of herself and was in better health, and Canon Livingstone, between whom and Miss Monroe great intimacy had sprung up since Eleanor had gone away, and Miss Monroe could ask him to tea, confirmed this report of Miss Wilkins's health from a letter which he had received, although the Livingstone and Forbeses were distinctly related, after the manner in Scotland. Could it have been that he offered to Euphemia, after all, that her mother had answered, or possibly there was a letter from Elfie herself enclosed? It was a pity for Miss Monroe's peace of mind that she did not ask him straight away. She would then have 
learnt what Canon Livingstone had no thought of concealing, that Mrs. Forbes had written solely to give him some fully directions about certain choices had she time to think about the hurry of starting. As it was, and when, a little later on, she had heard him speak of the possibility of his going himself to Rome, as soon as his term of resistance was over, in time for the carnival, he, she gave up her fond project in despair, and felt very much like a child whose house of bricks had been knocked down by the unlucky waft of some passing petticoat. Meanwhile, the entire change of scene brought on the exquisite refreshment of the entire change of thought. Eleanor had not been able to so completely forget her past life for many years. It was like a renewing of her youth, cut so suddenly short by the shears of fate. Ever since that night, she had had to rouse herself on awakening in the morning to a full comprehension of the great cause, for she had so much fear and heavy grief. Now, when she wakened in her little room, fourth piano, number third bobina, she saw the strange, pretty things around here, and her mind went off into pleasant wonder and conjecture, happy recollections of the day before, and pleasant anticipations of the day to come. Latent in Eleanor was her father's artistic temperament. Everything new and strange was from a picture, and a delight, the merest group in the street, a Roman facino with his cloak draped around his shoulder, a girl going to market or carrying her pitcher back from the fountain. Everything and every person that presented itself or himself to her, her senses gave them a delicious shock, as if it was something strangely familiar from Pinelli, but unseen by immortal eyes before him. She forgot her despondency, her real health disappeared as if by magic, and the Mrs. Forbes, who had taken the pensive, drooping invalid as but a companion of kindness out of heart found themselves amply rewarded by the sight of her amended health, and her keen enjoyment of everything, the half-quaint, half-naive expressions of her pleasure. So March came around, Lent was late that year, the great nosegays of violets and camillas were for sale at the corner of the condotti, and the revellers had no difficulty in procuring much rarer flowers from the bells of the Corsa. The embassies had their balconies, the attaches of the Russian embassy, threw their light and lovely presence at every pretty girl, or suspicion of a pretty girl, who passed slowly in her carriage, covered over her white domino, and holding her wire mask as protection to her face from the showers of lime confetti, who otherwise would have been enough to blind her. Mrs. Forbes had her own hired balcony, as became a wealthy and respectable Englishwoman. The girl had a great full basket of bouquets in which to pelt their friends in the crowd below. A store of moccoletti lay piled over the table behind, for it was the last day of the carnival, and as soon as dusk came on the tapers were to be lighted as to be as quickly extinguished by every means in one's power. The crowd below was at its wildest pitch. The rolls of riffraff to the city, the slow-driving carriages, showers of flowers, most of them faded by this time, everyone shouting and struggling in that wild pitch of excitement, which may so soon turn into fury. The Forbes's girls had given up a place at the window to their mother and Eleanor, who were gazing, half amused, half terrified, at this mad, party-coloured movement below, where a familiar face looked up, smiling in recognition, and how should I get to you, was asked in English, by the well-known voice of Canon Livingstone. They saw him disappear under the balcony on which they were standing, but it was some time before they made his, his appearance in their room. And when he did, he was almost overjoyed with greeting, so glad were they to see an East Chester face. When, when did you come? Where are you? What a pity you did not come sooner. It is so long since we have heard anything. Do tell us everything. It's three weeks since we have any letters. Those tiresome boats have been irregular because of the weather. How was everybody? Miss Monroe in particular, Eleanor asked. He, quietly smiling, replied to their questions by slow degrees. He had only arrived the night before, and been hunting for them all day, but no one can give any distinct intelligence as to their whereabouts and all the noise and confusion of the place, especially as they had only their English servant with them, and the canon was not strong in his Italian. 
He was not sorry he had missed all but the last day of this carnival, for he was half blinded and wholly deafened as it was. He was at the Angleterre, and as he had left East Chester about a week ago, he had all letters for all of them, but he had not dared to bring them through the crowd for fear of having his pocket picked. Miss Monroe was very well, but very uneasy at not having heard from Eleanor in so long. The irregularity of the boats must be telling both ways, for their English friends were full of wonder and not hearing from Rome. And then followed some well-deserved views of the Roman post, and some suspicion of the carelessness in which Italian servants posted English letters. All these answers were satisfactory enough, yet Mrs. Forbes sought to show a latent uneasiness in Canon Livingstone's manner, and fancied once or twice that he hesitated to replying Eleanor's questions. But there was no being quite sure in the increasing darkness, which prevented her countenances from being seen, nor in the constant interruptions and screams which were going on in the small crowded room, as wafting handkerchiefs, puffs of wind, or veritable extinguishers, fastened to long sticks, and coming from nobody knew where, to put out taper after taper as fast as they were lighted. "'You will come home with us,' said Mrs. Forbes. "'I can only offer you cold meat with tea. Our cook is gone, this being a universal festa, but we cannot part with an old friend for any scruples as to the commissariat. Thank you. I should have invited myself if you had not been good enough to ask me.' When they had all arrived at their apartment in the Babino, Canon Livingstone had gone round to fetch the letters with which he was entrusted. Mrs. Forbes was confirmed in her suspicion that he had indeed something particular and not very pleasant to say to Eleanor, by the rather grave and absent manner in which he returned, he awaited her return from her taking off of door things. He broke off, indeed in his conversation with Miss Forbes, to go and meet Eleanor, and lead her to the most distant window before he delivered her letters. From what you said in the balcony younger, I fear you not received your home letters regularly? No, she said, startling and trembling. She hardly knew why. Nor more, no more had Miss Monroe heard from you, nor, I believe, had someone else who expected to hear. Your man of business, I forget his name. My man of business? Something has gone wrong, Mr. Livingstone. Tell me. I want to know. I have been expecting it. Only tell me. She sat down suddenly, as white as ash did. Dear Miss Wilkins, I am afraid it is painful enough, but you are fancying it worse than it is. All your friends are quite well, but an old servant... Well, seeing his hesitation and leaning forward and gripping at his arm, is taken up on a challenge of manslaughter or murder. Oh, Mrs. Forbes, come here. For Eleanor had fainted, falling towards on the arm he held. When she came round, she was lying half undressed on her bed. They were giving her tea and spoonfuls. I must get up, she moaned. I must go home. You must lie still, said Miss Forbes, friendly. You don't know. I must go home, she repeated. And she tried to sit up, but fell back helpless. Then she did not speak, but lay there and thought. "'Will you bring me some meat?' she whispered, and some wine. They brought her meat and wine. She ate, though she was choking. "'Now, please bring ma me my letters and leave me alone, and after that I should like to speak to Canon Livingstone. "'Don't let him go, please. I won't be long. Half an hour, I think. Only let me be alone.' There was a hurried, feverish sharpness in her tone that made Mrs. Forbes very anxious, but she judged it best to comply with her request. The letters were brought— the lights were arranged so she could read them lying on her bed, and they left her. Then she got up and stood on her feet, dizzy enough, her arms clasped at the top of her head, her eyes dilating and staring as if looking at some great horror. But a few minutes she sat down suddenly and began to read. Letters were evidently missing. Some had been sent by an opportunity that had been delayed on journey, and had not arrived in Rome. Others had been dispatched by the post, but the severe weather, the unusual snow had in those days, before the railway was made between Lyons and Marseilles, put a stop to many a traveller's plans, and had rendered the transmission of the mail extremely uncertain, so much of that intelligence which Monroe and evidently considered as to be known to Eleanor was entirely a matter of conjecture, 
I could only be guessed at from what was told in these letters. One was from Mr. Johnson, one from Mr. Brown, one from Miss Monroe, and of course the last mention was the first read. She spoke of the shock of discovery of Mr. Dunster's body, found in the cutting of the new line of the railroad to Mr. from Hamley to the nearest railway station, the body so hastily buried long ago in its clothes, by now it was recognised, a recognition confirmed by one or two of the personal indestructible things, such as his watch and seal with his initials, of the shock to everyone, the Osbaldistones stones in particular, on the further discovery of a fleam or horse lancet, having the name of Abraham Dixon engraved on the handle, how Dixon had gone to Mr. Osbaldistone's business to a horse fair in some island some weeks before this, and he had his leg broken by a kick from an unruly mare, so he was barely able to move when the officers of justice went to apprehend him in Charlie. At this point, Eleanor cried out loud and chill, Oh, Dixon, Dixon! And I was away enjoying myself. They heard her cry and came to the drawer, but it was bolted inside. Please, go away, she said. Please go. I will be very quiet, only please go. She could not bear just then to read any more of Miss Monroe's letter. She tore open Mr. Johnson's. The date was from a fortnight earlier than Miss Monroe's. He had also expressed his wonder in not hearing in her reply to her letter at July 9th, but he added that he thought her trustees had judged rightly in the handsome sum the railway company had offered up for the land when their surveyor decided on the alteration of the line. Mr. Old Baldestone and C. She could not read any more. It was fate pursuing her. Then she took the letter up again and tried to read. But all that reached her understanding was the fact that Mr. Johnson had sent his present letter to Miss Monroe, thinking that she might know some private opportunity safer than the post. Mr. Brown's was just such a letter as he occasionally sent her from time to time. Correspondence aroused out of their mutual regard for their dead friend Mr. Ness. It, too, had been sent to Miss Monroe to direct. Eleanor was on the point of putting it aside entirely when the name of Corbett caught her eye. You will be interested to hear that the old pupil of her departed friend, who was so anxious to obtain the folio of Virgil with the its Italian notes, is appointed the new judge in room of Mr. Justice Jenkin. At least I concede that Mr. Ralph Corbett, Q.C., is the same Virgil fancier. Yes, said Eleanor bitterly. He judged well. He would never have done. Those are the first works of anything like reproach he has ever formed in her own mind during all these years. She thought for a few moments of the old times. It seemed to steady her brain to think of them. Then she took up and finished Miss Monroe's letter. That excellent friend had done all which, which she thought Eleanor would have wished without delay. She had written to Mr. Johnson and charged him to do everything he could to defend Dixon and to spare no expense. She was thinking of going to the prison in the country town to see the old man herself, but Eleanor could perceive all those endeavours and purposes of Miss Monroe's were based on love for her own people and a desire to set her mind at ease as far as she could, rather than from any ideas that Dixon himself could be innocent. Eleanor put down the letters and went to the door, then turned back, then locked them up in her writing case with trembling hands, and after that she entered the drawing-room, looking like her to a ghost and a living woman. "'Can I speak to you alone for, for a minute alone?' her tuneless, still voice that made the more into a command. Canon Livingstone arose and followed her into the little dining-room. "'Will you tell me all you know?' and all you have heard about my... you know what. Then Miss Monroe was my informant. At least, at first. It was in the Times the day before I left. Miss Monroe said it could only have been a moment of anger if the old servant was really guilty, that he was as steady and good a man as she ever knew, and she seemed to have a strong feeling against Mr. Dunster, as always giving your father much unnecessary trouble. In fact, she hints that his disappearance at the time was supposed to be the cause of a considerable loss of property to Mr. Wilkins. No, said Eleanor, eagerly feeling that some justice ought to be done to the dead man, and that she stopped short, fearful of saying that anything that should be betray her full knowledge. I mean this, she went on. Mr. Dunster was a very disagreeable man personally, and Papa, we none of us liked him, but he was quite honest, please remember that. 
The canon bowed and said a few equizing words. He waited for her to speak again. Miss Munro is saying that she is going to see Dixon in. Oh, Miss Livingstone, I can't bear it. He let her alone, looked at her pitifully, as she twisted and wrung her hands together in her endeavour to regain the quiet manner she had striven throughout the interview. She looked up at him with a poor attempt at an apologetic smile. It is so terrible to think of that good man in prison. You do not believe him guilty, said Canon Livingstone, in some surprise. I am afraid, from all I heard and read, but there is little doubt that he did kill the man. I trust in some moment of irritation, and with no premeditated malice. Eleanor shook his head. How soon can I get back to England, said she. I must start at once. Miss Forbes sent out while you were lying down. I am afraid there is no boat to Marseilles till Thursday, the day after tomorrow. But I must go sooner, said Eleanor, starting up. I must go. Please help me. He may be tried before I can get there. Alas, I feel that will be the case, whatever haste you make. The trial was to come on the Hellingford as ease, and that town stands first on the Midland Circuit list. Today is the 27th of February, and the assizes begin on the 7th of March. I'll start tomorrow morning earlier for Siva. There may be a boat down there that they did not know of here. At any rate, I shall be on my way. If he dies, I must die too. Oh, I don't know what I am saying. I will be so utterly crushed down. It will be such a kindness if you would go away and let no one come to me. I know Mrs. Forbes is so good. She will forgive me. I will say goodbye to you all tomorrow morning before I go, but I must think now. For one moment he stood looking at her, if he longed to comfort her by more words. He thought better of it, however, and silently left the room. For a long time Eleanor sat still, now and then taking up Miss Munro's letter and rereading the few terrible details. Then she bethought that her possibly the canon might have brought her a copy of the Times, containing the examination of Dixon before the magistrates, and she opened the door and called to a passing servant to make the inquiry. She was quite right in her conjecture. Dr. Livingstone had the paper in his pocket during his interview with her, but he thought the evidence so conclusive that the perusal of it will be only adding to her extreme distress by accelerating the conviction of Dixon's guilt, which he believed she must arrive at sooner or later. He had begun reading the report over with Miss, with Miss Forbes and her daughters, after his return from Eleanor's room, and they were all participating in his opinion upon it, when her request for the Times was brought. They had reluctantly agreed, saying there did not appear to be a shadow of doubt in the fact of Dixon having killed Mr. Dunster, only hoping there might be through some extenuating circumstances, which Eleanor had probably recollected, and which she was now derisious of pursuing on the approaching trial. End of chapter twelve. Recording by Anthony Orr.